I'm your host, David Nage. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Baselayer podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of ARCA, where David Nage is a principal. ARCA is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening. The primary purpose of this podcast series is to educate and inform. The podcast series does not constitute financial advice or other professional advice or services. Please do your own research. Baselayer is sponsored by Diginex and by its digital asset exchange, Equas. As an exchange, Equas is focused on delivering innovative product compliance, fairness, and most importantly, trust. In a time when institutional investors are beginning to seriously review digital assets for their portfolio, these are key elements necessary to build bridges to new investors. Equas currently provides digital asset spot trading and perpetual futures, and plans to soon offer dated futures and options. Parent company Diginex also provides capital markets advisory, asset management, and custody. To check them out, you can go to diginex.com and equos.io. That is E-Q-U-O-S.io. This is David. This is your new episode of Baselayer, and it's always great when I get to have a friend come back on. I have Tor Bear, the founder at the Secret Foundation. Tor, how are you? I'm excellent. It's good to be back. How are you? It's great to have you back. A lot has changed since we had you on. So if you could, for those that have not listened to the show before, give us a little bit of background on yourself. You have a lot of experience in this space in digital assets and blockchains. So give us a little bit of a background just quickly on how we got to where we are today with Secret. And then we're going to go into what Secret is and how you guys are trying to build a better internet. Absolutely. So uh, Secret network uh is the name of the network secret foundation is the name of the foundation uh where where i work uh but secret network is supported by dozens of entities in the blockchain ecosystem one of which is enigma uh where i used to be head of growth enigma had a vision back in 2015 even uh around this idea of privacy preserving computation uh, specifically in the context of decentralized networks, where we talked about them as like privacy-preserving smart contracts. So the initial Enigma white papers were written back in 2015 by Guy Ziskind, who's the Enigma CEO. This was while he was doing his research at MIT. At the time, I was a graduate student at MIT, so was the Enigma co-founder, uh, John Kisigun, was also at MIT. So we all met there, and this was the vision. Uh, and I want to stress, like this technical vision was very much you know, some, something that was based on Guy's research. At the time, I was not much of a technologist. In fact, my background was uh, options trading. So I was an options trader for five years in Chicago before going back to get my MBA. But while I was getting my MBA is when I was really exploring the potential of blockchain technology, of decentralized uh, d- digital assets and currencies and the like. And, and I was just fascinated, just such a, such a fascinating model where, where Guy's research really opened a new door for me was saying, now you can take these same sorts of technologies and not just solve the issue of how do you build a more decentralized, equitable, democratic financial system. It was like, what if you could also use these technologies and protect user privacy? 
so I've always been a privacy advocate. I've also worked uh, as a data scientist previously. So I've seen how data is misused, exploited uh, by social media companies, you know, by uh, search engines, you know, basically anybody who has data, generally speaking, has misused that data. So something I was passionate about. So I spent from 2017 through this year working at Enigma, trying to help pursue this vision of uh, privacy-first decentralized technologies. And what that's culminated in is uh, Secret Network launched in February of this year. And over the past six months or so, Enigma and the rest of the Secret Network ecosystem have been working to build this idea of privacy-preserving smart contracts and introduce them to mainnet. And as of September 15th, 2020, we're proud to say that Secret Network is now the first layer one blockchain to have uh, this capability for privacy preserving smart contracts, like general purpose smart contracts with encrypted inputs, encrypted outputs. It, it's a super powerful concept, so I'm happy to talk much more about it, but that's mm-hmm. kind of how we got from here to there. And now obviously we're, we're super excited now to help scale out the initial applications and, and get to global adoption of millions of end users of privacy first decentralized apps. Exactly. And the point. So let's talk about that. So for those, again, as you know, you know, my show are listeners who are dipping their toe into digital assets. They are institutional investors, their family offices out there, they have levels of sophistication around technology, and technology investments. And so they have learned or they are getting pretty good on Bitcoin, and they're understanding some of the use cases there and how it works. And now they are starting to learn about some of the other opportunities, especially in the Ethereum ecosystem. And so with Ethereum, with smart contracts, I think many are starting to understand if X and Y are participating in a sort of contract uh, on code, and then there are pricing validators, there's oracles that are going into there and making sure that the outcomes are kosher and copacetic that there is this nuance there. Now, I think a lot of them are not going to understand why there is a need for this, for this privacy component of that. And I think if you can explain the kind of the Ethereum-based smart contracts and how this layer of privacy, what it does and why it's there. Absolutely. Uh, It's actually usually how I explain it myself is sort of the evolution from Bitcoin to Ethereum and now Secret Network. So Bitcoin introduced, you know, decentralized money. And if you think about money, it's really just, you know, the ability to transfer value from one place to another and possibly to store value. So that's what Bitcoin introduced. Ethereum sort of expanded this concept by introducing programmability. So this is like programmable money. And when people talk about now about smart contracts on Ethereum or decentralized finance on Ethereum, they're talking about this idea of programmable money. Secret network, the way that we describe it, is that it's programmable privacy. So you can build any kind of application, just like you can on Ethereum, but not only can it be like whatever you want the smart contract to do, right? Like arbitrarily complex logic for what the smart contract should do. Now we also have arbitrarily complex rules for how data is used within these systems. I actually think that this is something that people who may be more familiar with the, you know, the real world, as I call it, the legacy world of, mm-hmm. of, of, of corporate everything, right? Like 
privacy is kind of everything. Like you don't you don't want your trade secrets out there. You constantly need to be coordinating between different parties who have different levels of informational access, and and that's a good thing. Like it, it's what creates the potential for collaboration and commerce. With Ethereum, the problem that we have right now is that everything is public by default. Blockchains are very good at like auditability, transparency, etc. So mm-hmm. they're bad at privacy by design. This was an intentional choice in the design of blockchain, but that makes it particularly poorly suited for many, 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 many kinds of applications. Mm-hmm. So if people are trying to understand the value of privacy preserving smart contracts, what I say is imagine literally any application in the world. And now imagine trying to use that application if every piece of information on it was public to everybody using it. So a decentralized Uber where everybody knew your home address, uh, a decentralized lending platform where everybody knew your credit history, so on and so forth. Like you just could not, in the blockchain space, for some reason, we've all accepted that like a lack of privacy is okay. And in the in the real world, we've all decided that it's absolutely not okay. And that if any piece of information is leaked to the wrong person, it's terrible. Blockchain leaks every piece of information to everybody at all times. That, that's the easiest way I can kind of explain the value to somebody. Finally, we have created a system by which blockchain has caught up to the way that the real world works, which means we can finally start to put some of the value of that we've created in the real world onto a mm-hmm. blockchain. Instead of it being speculative value, it's actual like corporate level adoption of these kinds of technologies and solutions. I like that. We're going to talk about the use cases because there's several of those that you already alluded to, but we're going to talk about the use cases in a second here. But what I want to get is just kind of under the hood a little bit. Obviously, it gets technical, and I don't want people to get blown out by the technicalities. But so the first part of it, the secret network is it's a centralized network of computers, secret nodes that utilize trusted execution environments. T's. What are those? So uh, TEEs, trusted execution environments, secure enclaves. You know, this is this is what they're called. These are like hardware-based privacy solutions. The idea is it's kind of like there's this black box inside the computer or the node uh, that even the node itself can't access. It's kind of a weird thing to think about uh, if it's like, because we generally think of like, especially if you're non-technical, it's like, oh, the computer is a, is just one thing. Something that the computer knows, every part of the computer knows. But that's not that's not really how secure enclaves work. So it's more like if you think about your smartphone, this this is um, this is the analogy that I usually use to describe this. There's There's a fingerprint reader on your smartphone. And that's kind of isolated from the rest of the phone. The rest of the phone isn't constantly accessing your fingerprint and, and sending it back to the CIA, right? But you still need to be able to unlock your phone. So it's it's sort of like a separate, uh, a separate enclave where this data is actually processed and decrypted. So what that allows our network to do, because every node in the network needs to be enabled with this secure enclave, is that the nodes themselves, when data is coming into the network, when data is coming into a smart contract, that smart contract is actually being executed inside the enclave. Like the blockchain is effectively running inside the enclave. Mm-hmm. So the, the smart contract is decrypted inside of there, the data is processed, and then you can know the output of the smart contract. Like that's what pops back out, but you didn't see all of the input data. You end up with a really powerful thing actually, where like the code of a contract, like you can know what the contract does. And that's important because you want to make sure it's not like malicious code. You want to make sure the thing does what you think it does. But the actual input data is private at all times. 
like e even to the node itself that ends mm -hmm. up performing the computation. That that's what makes this idea of secure computation so powerful, and we enable it via you know this hardware-based privacy technology initially, and we're working to also implement some more like there, there's other alternative forms of privacy technologies that are like more purely software-based, like fully homomorphic encryption, zero knowledge proofs, etc. It's this will get hyper hyper technical if we go down that road. So I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm loath to do it, but just to, so that people listening understand, there's there's a lot of ways that you can accomplish with this with, and they're all insanely technical, right. insanely complicated, which is why it's taken us so long to actually produce and implement this technology. Like yeah. none of this is trivial, and some of these fields, like multi-party computation, have been fields of research since the '80s. We're not saying like just since blockchain. Like this has been a holy grail of computer science for for decades. Mm -hmm. Yep, zero knowledge proofs are definitely a part of that, and so we've had several people come on to talk about them, but we won't do it here because, again, that gets into very technicals, and we're going to try to focus on the high level and why this is a necessary thing that has come out. So let's talk about this. One of the things that I love talking about is this idea of governance and consensus. I believe you guys are using a Cosmos SDK kind of tendermint uh, function there. Um, so talk about the consensus mechanisms. How do you get the participants, the validators on here to all do the things that they need to do? Yeah, so if people listening are familiar with Cosmos chains, this is a Cosmos SDK Tendermint-based chain. Um, and of course, we've introduced a very unique functionality, which is this ability to do privacy-preserving computation. Uh, for people who have no idea what that means, um, we're, we have a delegated proof-of-stake consensus model. What that means is people who hold the native coin of our chain, which is called secret, SCRT, if you hold this coin and you stake it, with, with a validator in the network, not only are you helping to like secure the network uh, by keeping those nodes online, you also have a stake in governance, which means you can vote on the things that happen with the network, including the inflation rate, including like funding and funding proposals. Um, we've already had uh, around 20, I think, funding proposal, or well, not funding proposal, but proposals of any kind mm -hmm. pass on the chain. Some of them are funding proposals. We recently funded the creation of, uh, of a wallet that's going to be able to interact with these privacy-preserving smart contracts. Super important if you want like millions of users adopting these things, that there's some sort of UX that they can interact with that isn't a command line. So that was really exciting. But some of them are also like, we want to adjust, adjust the inflation rate longer term so that things are either like more attractive in the long term, less attractive, et cetera. Um, so the use of the SCRT coin is staking. Like I said, you, you actually get a return on the coins that you're you're staking. Like new coins are constantly being generated in the network, similar to how new bitcoins are always being mined. Mm -hmm. So if you're running a validator, uh, you get a share of those block rewards the same way that miners get a share of Bitcoin. But unlike Bitcoin, there's also this idea of delegation. So even if you're not running the node itself, you can delegate to somebody who is. And by delegating to a node operator in the network, you're, you get then a, uh, a share of their block rewards that are generated because they're effectively running the node on your behalf. And you're also delegating your vote so that if the validator votes on something, the, the person whose stake you've delegated to, if they make a vote on a proposal, they're effectively voting for you as well. It, it's actually an interesting governance system because it starts to mirror some of the aspects of uh, American or uh, other democracies mm -hmm. where it's sort of like a democratic republic. 
Um, I, I think that there's some uh, some major differences. So I don't mean to say that this works <laughs> like the U.S. Go- in fact, I would like to say that this doesn't work like the U.S. government. In fact, it works better than the U.S. government, especially today. Um, but there's um, but there's definitely some interesting elements to governance now in the blockchain space that that are um, getting much more interesting and and much more democratic. Like it's giving people a more direct voice in how the network is governed and how it grows and expands. We're, we're really excited to see that be something that be a huge focus for our community. We're very much a community governed project uh, and we're proud of it. So just when you're talking about proof of stake and I want people to understand this, the way that it kind of works is a economic incentive or disincentive model. Whereas if someone is not, being performant, and I'm saying someone that could be obviously computational per, you know, services as well too. But again, if there is a lack of computation, if things are not running accordingly, that are obviously hampering the overall chain, if you will, then they could potentially have their stake burned. Correct? Yeah. So there's uh, in Cosmos chains, there's this uh, concept called slashing. That's right. And the idea, and the idea is that if your node goes offline, or if it double signs a block, I won't, I won't get into necessarily what that means, but mm-hmm. there's varying ways that the node can misbehave and somehow compromise the consensus of the network. And in a proof of stake network, you need a a punishment mechanism, because in a proof of work network, it works a little differently. Like mm-hmm. you're constantly burning electricity. So if if you're doing the wrong thing, really all you're doing is just like wasting your money. In a proof of stake network. Uh, usually it's not as intense in terms of the costs to the network. So there is this introduction of slashing where you lose a percentage of your stake if you if you don't behave, if your node goes down for too long of a period it, or if you misbehave in some other fashion to compromise the consensus of the network. Um, and in a delegated proof of state network, it's actually even worse because you are burning a percentage of the delegated stake. So as a validator, you have a double incentive. Not only would you be losing your own staked coins, but if somebody has delegated to you and they lose a percentage of your coins, well, they're probably not going to delegate to you anymore right. because they trusted you to do something on on their behalf. You're no longer doing it. So it, it can compromise your relationship longer term with the network. So there's very high incentives to keep your node online, keep it performant. And you know, in exchange for taking that risk, in exchange for keeping the the network it's it's what i describe as a much more like sustainable model for a network not just in terms of the fact that like you're not you know spitting massive amounts of carbon into the ecosystem but it's sustainable Mm -hmm. in the sense that like i see these economics working and evolving over time in a healthy fashion where you actually probably do avoid some of the centralization risks of proof of work networks like you're seeing like how many bitcoin mining pools are there too so let's talk a little bit more under the hood and then we're going to go into the use cases and we're going to talk about something on the global macro side uh, that in regard to privacy. But uh, in the language you're using Rust, if I'm not mistaken, and one of the things that I've talked about is that with Ethereum, that a lot of the developers and engineers out there have not really loved the relationship or the learning curve on Solidity. And so... We've seen other projects look at Rust, at JavaScript. Why did you elect to use Rust? Is it because of that purpose? Yeah, so Rust is an amazing language. 
Uh, and it's definitely a top choice of, of our own developers. But as you said, it's not just our own developers who have chosen Rust. So first of all, Rust was voted, I'm, I'm going to botch which survey this was, but it was asked, like, what's the most loved language in the world right now? And, and Rust topped the list. So it's growing very fast in terms of adoption. You have, you know, a lot of projects in the Web3 Polkadot ecosystem utilizing Rust. You have Near utilizing Rust, like a lot of blockchain mm -hmm. projects. There's even like a dedicated newsletter called Rust in Blockchain mm -hmm. devoted to all of the Rust development that goes on in the blockchain space. So we're certainly not unique in that regard, whereas Solidity, of course, is its own beast entirely. Uh, we really believe in the long term. Uh, well, first of all, I should say we believe that we should always build for the long term. So we're constantly looking for the languages and the and the structures that we believe will work in the long run. So in our network, smart contracts are written in Rust. They compile to Wasm WebAssembly. Mm -hmm. uh, all of this is you know, compatible with other networks, but also what we believe is compatible with what will be the future of development. So Rust, Rust is a, a very secure language in a lot of ways. I, I won't, I won't be able to go into exactly why here and do an excellent yep. job uh, explaining. But it's the one things, the things that I would want to stress is it's it is secure. There is mm -hmm. still a learning curve, but like when you take on this learning curve, it's with the understanding that many other networks have made the same choice that we are making. Right. And I firmly believe that like, yeah, this is going to be the future of smart contract development. There are some networks that are saying like, here are the seven languages you're going to be able to develop in. We may eventually support other languages, especially if they, if they compile similarly. But for right now, our focus is firmly on Rust. And, and we believe that that has a number of other performance and security advantages that will benefit developers, uh, the same developers who would be so security and privacy conscious as to look to develop private smart contracts. So there's a there's a very good uh, alignment there. Again, I want people to understand that, you know, yes, there's technicalities here. Yes, we're talking about, you know, code and language. At the end of the day, though, it's about supply and demand. If you have the ability to create a system where the supply of talented engineers and developers can quickly come on there and build you typically hopefully probabilistically would have higher degrees of success and so there are a set amount of people around the world that have the ability to code and to write and to engineer a lot of the application and appliances that we use today and so if you give them the ability to come in day one with sdks and with the ability to use a language that is a little bit more dare I call it user-friendly, you have a probabilistic higher you know, chance of having more engineers come on and having more applications and apps being created there. And so it's just important as we think about kind of adoption, not only from users, but adoption from those that are actually building these things. And so I think it's just important to highlight that. Now, let's go into the use cases. So as we all have been talking about, you know, obviously DeFi has blown up this year. And so I believe there are uh, kind of use cases for DeFi and for data sharing. We're starting to see that come into play now with things like Filecoin coming live again. And Arweave, you know, we're also seeing uh, healthcare as potentially other use cases. And I think that's very interesting, obviously, in a COVID world where we're starting to see this kind of concept come in. 
if I want to be able to participate in society again, this idea, I think that Balaji kind of created this kind of red and green zone where you can prove if you are actually negative, if you've tested negative, et cetera, et cetera. You know, love to hear your thoughts on the healthcare side and then gaming. That's another area that we're seeing. We see over two and a half billion people around the world playing games. And so we'd love to hear kind of on DeFi, on data sharing, on healthcare and gaming, how Secret fits into that. All right. So just everything, right? <laughs> where to begin? Uh, so data sharing is is one of those things where it's the easiest place to start there. I'll actually put it in the context of like access control and data sharing. So we just wrote a blog post actually about some interesting access control applications that are possible with Secret Network. But really what it is is just, again, we talked about programmable privacy. And all that is is the idea that some things should be public to some people and private to others. A lot of the times when I have to explain privacy to people, it's it's seen as a Boolean. Right? It's either off or on. You either have something to hide or nothing to hide. And that's insane. Uh, so part of the reason we call secret network secret network is that a secret is defined for us as something that like you would share with somebody that you trust. You know, We share secrets with our friends and, and it creates a stronger bond in that relationship and in that trust. But it's a secret because you wouldn't just tell a stranger. And that's okay. Like Privacy doesn't have to be something, and I would argue that it really isn't, you know, something bad, something negative. It's it's something that allows us to be human, something that allows us to engage in trust and commerce. So when it comes to things like secure data sharing, you know, it, it, really all we're saying is like, what if you have something that in order to coordinate with another party, you would like them to have access to some of the information in exactly some context, but not every context. So for example, if you want, uh, let's say that you are a consortium of banks, and you want to do some sort of fraud detection so that you can protect, uh, you, you know, you're protecting the livelihoods of the banks, right? Um, but you're also protecting your other customers, your legitimate customers. Uh, but you can't share the sensitive customer data with competitors. What if you could do some sort of secure data sharing where collectively this consortium could, you know, share information on customers in an encrypted fashion, do some sort of processing over this to do fraud detection, uh, and and like everybody gains from the greater uh, set of knowledge, but no one's privacy is compromised. That's the vision of secure data sharing. That's a key use case for secret network. You can see this, uh, you know, I don't have to just pick the banking sector, really any industry that would benefit from like data sharing across organizations or let's say internal to a multinational organization done across borders. Like we can think of hundreds of applications. When it comes to access control, this is something I talk a lot about in the Web3 decentralized web space. Imagine you want to build some sort of decentralized Spotify or any sort of content you know, management platform where like a creator wants to create some content, share it with some people and not others. Maybe it's a subscription service uh, or something Patreon style, right? then you do need this capacity for programmable privacy and access control to be able to say these users now have access to this information these other users don't because these users have done something they've interacted with the application in some way that these others haven't to date in the decentralized space you know like if you wanted to build a permissionless application that had these properties you really couldn't ethereum doesn't allow you to do this you do need the programmable privacy characteristics of secret network to be able to do it uh we'll keep moving right what did we say decentralized finance mm -hmm. same thing what if you want to be able to build some sort of lending application, but you don't want to expose your entire credit history? Like you want to be eligible for, for loans if you are 
like if you are eligible for loans, like if you can prove that you are credit worthy, you deserve to to have a loan. Like this, this is how the whole world runs. Like people being able to access uh, capital and, and build wealth for their futures. And we want the permissionless economy, the decentralized finance economy, to work the same way. But with Ethereum and other networks, you have to expose everything about yourself in, or, in order to interact with these systems. Every, every Ethereum address is public. Everything you're doing on Ethereum, moving this value around is public. But what if you could have it so that you could share your encrypted credit history with the network? It would you be able to utilize that history to give you a credit score, give you access to like a temporary loan of digital assets. And then you could use those assets in these decentralized finance applications, you know, in any of the ways that people are interacting with DeFi applications today. But at no point has your privacy been compromised. And with Secret Network, it actually goes a step beyond because every successive person who interacts with Secret Network is adding to the to the global privacy set of the network. So we actually have network effects for privacy with Secret Network. So even if you don't care about your privacy, you benefit from everybody who does. It's similar to like vaccination. Even if you personally don't believe that vaccinations work, you are protected by all of the people who understand that they do. Right. Uh, so that's DeFi. And then we said healthcare, you know, healthcare obviously being able to do computations over shared data sets is critical. Um, actually, Enigma built this application called SafeTrace. Um, and they, uh, they'll, there'll be more information about SafeTrace soon. We're, we're, currently, uh, we're currently seeing Enigma do some stuff with, with Intel, with IBM, et cetera. So, but, but for right now, let me focus on what the application does. It's privacy-preserving contact tracing. The idea that you can share your location history or your, uh, you, you know, your COVID positive status with an application that then wouldn't be able to misuse that data in any other way. It wouldn't create a massive honeypot of data. It wouldn't make the government then able to like exclude you from anything else in society by virtue of a positive test. Only only the data that should be shared is shared. Uh, so it helps protect users because they understand if they've been exposed, uh, but it doesn't compromise their privacy. And it still allows you know researchers and people tracking outbreaks to be able to do complex analytics over uh, over the entire data set. Mm -hmm. uh, that's that that's ideal. Like honestly, is like to be able to pro provide privacy to users, but still maintain this ability for computation. Right. And then lastly, we said gaming. I'll keep that one short. Any game where somebody needs to know something that somebody else doesn't need to know. Poker, Hangman, Rock Paper Scissors, like the most trivial examples, but obviously you can generalize this. Mm -hmm. Uh, like that's privacy is also essential. Otherwise, like you can't build this as a per permissionless game. I mean, I, I could really go on with these applications, like privacy preserving auctions. So you can have hidden bids, privacy preserving voting. So you like, like it does in the wor real world. We don't right. tell everybody who we voted for when we went to the polls. Like these are all the things that haven't been possible in the decentralization space. It's why we haven't seen adoption now with secret network. We can very nicely said. Let's talk very briefly, as I said, you know, on a kind of news and noteworthy side of things. The IRS, I believe, has a bounty out to try to break Monero, which is in the privacy side, too. Would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. So the government has a very difficult relationship with privacy technologies because, again, from the perspective of any government, something that they don't see and that they don't know uh, is a threat first and an opportunity later. 
Uh, so with something like Monero, Monero is a transactional privacy coin. It's, it's like Secret Network is focused on data privacy, programmable privacy, like application level privacy. Monero seems pretty explicitly to say our use case is hiding the transfer of value between individuals. So somebody like the IRS probably looks at that and says, well, that's bad. That's going to be money laundering. And, you know, they're, they're giving these massive bounties for people to then crack it. But there's two things to note here. One is they didn't, they're not able to do it themselves. Like they, they don't know how to do it. Like that means that the technology on some level actually works and that these, and the fact that Monero is used means that the technology has some value. I'm, I'm not saying to whom, I'm not saying it should, but what I'm saying is like, that's one thing that they're saying. But secondly, like there's already a bounty to break Monero, right? Like Monero, anybody who can break the encryption on Monero uh, probably can make a lot of money doing it, probably more than like a, a half million dollars that the IRS would give them. Mm -hmm. uh, there's already like, it, it, basically in the blockchain space, there's constantly a bug bounty out on every application. And if you can break it and make money from doing it, generally people do. And we see this happen all the time in the decentralized finance space. Mm -hmm. You don't need these external incentives to attack these systems. The systems themselves are the incentive models uh, and they're constantly being re-engineered, constantly self-iterating. Uh, and that's why they've gotten so strong and so powerful. Some of them is because uh, there's always incentive to break them. And if they haven't been broken, it just means like they're good enough uh, that, that it hasn't happened. Right. Now, here's here's where I want to talk specifically about like IRS Monero, like the government's attitude toward privacy, because I have to like clear up so many misconceptions about privacy to people in the private sector and to people in the public sector, right? Like privacy is, <laughs> even though it's it's treated as a threat, it really is a public good. Like it is what allows us as individuals to exist in a society and have that not be... Uh, like essentially like a fascist or like surveillance driven society. Like if you want to live in a democratic society, there needs to be some sort of element of privacy. Cash transactions are have their own element of privacy. There's far more money laundered in USD than there is money laundered in Monero or any other digital asset. It's it's not even close. And people are paying billion, trillion dollar fines because they're doing it. And we're talking about some of the largest banks in the world. The reason governments crack down on privacy is mostly because uh, you know, like I said, like they have no incentive to to let anything private go on if if everything can be public to the government and they can extract more value from it. It's the same reason there's no incentive for like Google to not do absolutely everything that they can with the, your data unless there's legislation saying they can't, unless it's going to cost them more money paying these massive fines, or I should use Facebook as an example here. Like otherwise, they're going to do everything that they can to extract every last bit of value over having your data like not be private to them. So when corporations and when governments both don't have any incentive to keep your data private or to not exploit it, and they're sometimes in coordination on those points, that that's when you end up in a really dangerous situation. But that's why you see demand now from users to say, hey, like if, if the governments aren't incentivized to protect us and the corporations aren't incentivized to protect us, who will? And I think the IRS going after "Quote unquote Monero is, is you know just another example of all the ways in which people are there's a very clear communication from governments to users like our interests are not aligned. I could talk about this and I could have you talk about this for hours, but we're going to keep it short and sweet. We talked all about Secret and some of the components there and how it works and why it needs to be there. And so I encourage everyone to take a look. Where can people learn more about it and uh, follow along the project? Uh, if you want to learn more about Secret Network, uh, the best place to start is on our website, 
which is scrt.network. It's basically secret without the ease.network. That links you out to the blog. It links you out to all of our communities, including the secret chat, which is chat.secret.network. We have a developers forum at forum.secret.network. We're on Twitter at, at secret network. I'm on Twitter as well at Tor Bear, my first name, last name. Always happy to talk about this stuff. Um, as, as you've seen, I, I'm also happy to rant about this stuff. But <laughs> obviously, this is uh, it's a conversation. All of this is is not solved. It, it's a very complex topic, privacy. Right. And, and how we solve it is also complex. So I would just encourage anybody listening, if you want to learn more about this stuff, if you disagree with anything that I'm saying, please jump into that conversation because I would love to learn from your perspective. And ideally, we're all aligned around one very critical point, which is we just want to make an internet we want to make an economy that works better for the end users in those systems and and not have them have to you know live oppressed that's that's our goal that and i believe privacy is a critical critical element to achieving it well said i can't even wrap up any better than that so Tor, thank you for coming on. Everyone reach out, uh, take a look at their website. We'll make sure we put that in the liner notes and uh, We'll check back in with you in a few months and see how things are progressing and uh, stay safe and uh, keep at it. Good luck. Thank you, man. You as well. Thanks for listening in to Baselayer. If you like the show and all the different guests that we've brought on, please give a like and subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you do listen to the podcast. Also, if you want to have a conversation or reach out to me, you can reach me out on Twitter at David J. Nage. And let's talk there. Or also you can find me on LinkedIn. And I look forward to having great conversations with you all about digital assets. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, one of the best digital asset event and media production companies that I know of. For exclusive content and events that provide insight into digital assets, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. You won't be disappointed.